Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. This past Friday, I invited Dr. Mike Farley to join me to discuss the question, why should we trust the Bible at a forum here in the St. Louis area? I discussed some of the issues related to this topic with Dr. Farley early last year on episodes 7 and 8 of this podcast, and I thought it would be a good idea to have another conversation with him, this time before a live audience. On this episode, you'll hear the first part of this conversation, and next week I'll present part 2, in which Dr. Farley and I interact with questions from the audience. Dr. Farley is the Visiting Professor of Applied Theology at Covenant Theological Seminary, and he also serves as the Pastor of Spiritual Formation at Central Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. Dr. Mike Farley, welcome to the Friday Night Forum. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Most of the time I do on-the-street interviews, I've talked with Christians, but on some occasions I talk with the average college-age student. And on this occasion, I asked, what do you think about the Bible? Whether you're a religious person or not, what do you think about the Bible? Here's what I heard. Personally, I think most of it is fiction. Yeah, I just find it hard to believe, like, the stories in the Bible. It takes, like, a lot of faith to believe it, and I don't know where, like, all these people find their faith. I think that some people find a lot of comfort in it, and I personally don't read it, don't regard it as being anything. I just think it's a glorified story, but... Like, a guy gets swallowed by a whale and survived, and then, like, stuff in the Bible seems like it can't come true. Like, someone died, and then they come back to life. Unbelievable. It's hard to believe. I think they just want to believe what they want to. I mean, people shouldn't accept religion as something that needs proof. Religion is faith, and faith is something, by definition, that can't be proven. That's why you shouldn't ask for proofs from the Bible. I have uh, religious friends who've tried to explain faith to me, and I honestly, I wish it was something that I did have. But uh, faith seems to me to be a feeling that you don't need objective proof because it's just something that you know inherently. And I generally base my theory of the universe based on evidence more than just faith. The Bible? Yep. Um, I actually think it is a story written by several people that were the first candidates of 
having multiple personalities and they were hearing voices in their head and they thought it was God. I think a lot of it also is just, you know, fictitious stories that have been passed down, you know, like Noah's story, you know. Why do you think so many people find it so compelling? I think people just want something to believe in so bad. And the one good thing it does is it does bring people together. I just think it's crazy, though. <laughs> so, Dr. Farley, what do you think about those uh, those responses? <laughs> well, they're kind of all over the map. They are. Some of the um, answers there, uh, which I think is a lot what we want to discuss tonight, is uh, clearly driven by this idea that faith and evidence or faith and reason are somehow opposed to each other, yeah. like inherently opposed to each other. Like to have faith means not to have evidence, means not to have reasons. That To think of faith as kind of a subjective feeling like that, uh, I think it's a big problem because it seems to me it's exactly the opposite of the way that the Bible talks about faith yeah. uh, and, what, and what faith should be. Unfortunately, I think this reflects a, a great deal of what's happened in our modern world that sort of wants to put uh, science and reason in one box yeah. and religion and faith in another box. And those are separate boxes. You know, some people find ways to have both of those boxes in their lives, but those boxes don't touch each other. And I think that's the way the modern world kind of thinks about not just the Christian faith, but about religion in general. Exactly. You know, religion and science, religion and reason are just different compartments. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've heard sympathetic people say things like, and you even heard it here, you know, it could be okay if it brings people together or if it brings comfort to people or, you know, that may be fine for you. That's okay. You can have that box in your life. Um, but don't don't tell me that it actually is reasonable. Right. You know, don't tell me it's actually speaking about the real world in a way that everyone should find compelling. Yeah. Do you think it would be a good tactic to agree with them in a large part that this is the way faith works in most religions of the world? So agree with them that that is kind of an irrational thing, but then at some point make the contrast between most religions in the world and then talk about how the Bible's different, or maybe ask them, why do you think that assumption about all religions is valid when it comes to the Bible? Sure. I, I think that um, that anything you, you can do to get people to to think more specifically about, you know, what what the Bible actually is saying in, in, in contrast to what they're assuming that it says, anything you can do to actually get people to some specific examples, yeah. you know, um, to, to be able to, to show people that the Bible actually invites us to use our minds, it, that God himself engages in giving us reasons to believe him in, you know, in the Bible uh, could be good. I was raised in a secular Jewish kind of home where the Bible was just kind of taken for granted and no one whether my parents or my religious instructors, as I was going to Hebrew school, nobody's trying to attempt to tell me this is real. So I kind of privately began to think of the faith in very similar ways to what we heard here, that it's just a bunch of fictional stories. It's the tradition that I'm raised with. And, you know, I wonder if you, in light of that, like, do you think we should have, for example, a much stronger emphasis on apologetic preaching? where it's not just here are the doctrines to believe, but here's the fact and here's why it's fact and here's why the fact becomes doctrine. Mm -hmm. When I was um, studying the history of Christianity in, in my doctoral work, there was a statement I came across in my studies that said, if you only understand one tradition, you actually don't understand any. And the, the meaning was that we often understand what we believe by contrasting it mm -hmm. with alternative beliefs yeah. or contrasting it with competing ideas. 
and that it's as we get more clarity about how our view differs from others, uh, we actually come to even understand our own faith a right. better, you know, in that process of dialogue and study and compare and contrast. And I think it's all the more important today because we live in a world where there are lots of competing ideas and and nobody can assume that their view is the default view that everyone will get or that everyone will understand or agree with. Uh, it doesn't matter where you are across the whole spectrum of religious views. Nobody can just assume that everybody else is going to agree with you. Um, there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor, a Christian philosopher, who says he thinks this is actually what it means to say that we live in a secular age. Not that everybody's become an atheist, but it's secular in, in, a, in a broader sense that nobody's view is the default. Unlike the way that, say, Europe and North America were two to three to four hundred years ago. Right. You know, if you lived in France in, you know, in the 1400s, you would be a believer in the Christian God, like almost by default. It would be almost impossible for you not to be because the whole society was so dominated by that one viewpoint and it was so pervasive. And so Charles Taylor has written all these big books trying to ask this question, how did we get from that to today uh, where no view is the default at all? Right. He thinks that's what it partly means to become a secular society. But I, you know, I think it can be easy for Christians to feel threatened by that process, to think there's so many different views out there. How can I ever, you know, how can I live in this world? But realize that that's exactly the kind of world into which Jesus and the apostles and the early church actually came and lived. That some of the greatest periods of Christian growth of the church happened in the first several centuries of the church in a pluralistic Roman world that was just filled with different kinds of religions, all kinds of different religious options and philosophies that were all competing with each other. And the gospel of Jesus flourished in that environment. And it can do so in our own day. One thing we can learn from the early church is exactly what you were suggesting, that we have to, in our teaching, in our preaching, in our study, when, when we're trying to work out and understand our faith, we have to do this in a way that is relating it to the different viewpoints that I think exist in our own yeah. culture. You know? And they weren't saying, if you become a Christian, you'll have wonderful experiences. You don't see that kind of an argument in uh, the book of Acts. They didn't say, give Jesus a chance or pay attention to that deep spiritual intuition somewhere deep in your heart, they actually continually referred to that which was seen by eyewitnesses and foreseen by the prophets. And that ends up being a truth claim that I think we've underemphasized today. Do you agree? That that's yeah, an I, think, I think a lot of Christians want their neighbors to see that their faith is relevant. Yeah. And so in trying to make it relevant, a lot of ways that we try to do that is to try to connect our faith to the experiences that people have. Yeah. You know, we, we want to say our faith will give you meaning in life. It will give you purpose in life. It's practical. It will, it will yeah, it will give you guidance in yeah. life. It will help answer the hopes and desires yeah. that you have in your heart. And, and there is a side of the truth that is very, that's an important thing to do. You know, I think there, there is a way in which what God has revealed to us in scripture actually does meet the deepest longings of our hearts. Uh -huh. It actually does give us practical wisdom and guidance. But those things only happen because of the objective right. truths about who God is and what he's done in the world. So our, our experience of God is only is only as good as uh, the truth about God that actually grounds all those things. Yeah. You know, and so we, we I, I think that our desire to make the faith relevant and attractive sometimes winds up 
giving the impression to people that that's all it is. Yeah. You know, rather than a foundation of truth about who God is and what he's done in the world. Like we heard it in the in college students. They, a lot of them thought it's not true in the historical sense. Do we need to do more work there? I think there are a lot of people who, if they don't come from a church background, they may have very well have encountered teaching about religion through TV programs or uh, classes in school, yeah. or perhaps a freshman level college class about religions in general. And then, you know, when, when you watch various PBS specials or things on the Discovery Channel or any number of, you know, YouTube, you know, videos, you can see th they often try to portray all religions as sort of being like equally a bunch of myths. Yeah. Like equally a bunch of sort of fantastic stories. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, isn't it amazing that there are all these fantastic, crazy stories that ancient peoples made up? You certainly can find mythology stories from the ancient world that are fantastic, uh, that I think are totally unbelievable. You know, and, and I think a lot of people generalize and think, well, Christianity must be just like that, too, without actually having read the details. Uh, and, and I'm often struck just having come out of the Christmas season. I'm always struck when we do these readings from Luke 2 every year, when, when we read the, the Christmas story from Luke 2 and it starts... In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Like, that's not the kind of thing that people sitting around, ancient people sitting around a campfire just sort of made up off the top of their head. It didn't you start know, off once upon a time. There's an allusion to all <laughs> these historical details, yeah. to all these particular people in particular places in a, in a first yeah. century setting. You know, clearly, and Luke, if we turn back a chapter in Luke, we find that he opens his whole gospel saying, I've examined multiple orderly accounts of Jesus' life, and, I, and I've sought to put those together and write my own orderly account for you so that you can believe. I mean, here's a man so that you can have certainty. Yes. So that you can know that these historical events that I'm reporting to yeah. you are true. That generates its own sense of relevance. Yeah. You know, that, that this is not some story about how three gods came together and built a flat world on the basis of turtles all the way down. You know, this it's, isn't a mythological story of that sort. The gospel writers are talking about actual people in actual real space-time history. Do you think part of the problem is that people today are a little bit more anti-historical than they used to be? There's, in other words, there's a plausibility to say, well, it happened so long ago, who's to know what really happened, and were people all superstitious back then anyway? Yeah, I do think that a lot of people don't understand how it is that we know things about the ancient world. Right. You know, where do we get these sources? How do we know that they're trustworthy? Yeah. A lot of people, I think, don't, fewer and fewer people, I think, understand how that works yeah. and, and why that's trustworthy. So yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. So if you were having a conversation with someone who didn't understand that, what might you encourage them to think about as they're processing the Old and New Testaments? Like, why are these better understood as historical documents rather than legends and mythology? Well, I think part of what we have to do is that we need to be able to have examples where we can show how things in the Bible do relate to things that we also have information about elsewhere. Yeah. Um, they may not know those other sources of information. You know, for example, there are people on TikTok and YouTube who, who make the argument that Jesus was never a real person at all. Uh, the, Jesus is just a mythological figure. There was no such person as Jesus of Nazareth. This makes the rounds on the internet all the time. I mean, no historian believes this. You know, um, so what you would have to do is not just read the Gospels. What we can also do is say, I can give you quotes from five other historians that were writing in the first century who allude to this person, Jesus of Nazareth, as a real person in history. Yeah. Um, 
they may not know what those other sources are, but if you're able to make those connections for people, all of a sudden the Bible gains credibility or more credibility. Or at least it puts a rock in their shoe to give them something to think about. Right. You have scholars who said the Book of Mormon makes all these claims about cities and people and events that happened in North America. And yet when when people people who want to try to test that and say, okay, well, let's 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 do some digging. Let's try to find out where these civilizations yeah. actually did. They come up with zero. Yeah. But with the New Testament and the Old Testament, um, you you often will have people who are initially skeptical who dig into the evidence and actually come out believers on the other side. Right. Like this happens over and over again. There was a famous 19th century scholar, William Ramsey. He intentionally set out to prove that the book of Acts was non-historical. He set out to prove that Luke was not writing truth about history. And having done all the work, he comes out on the other side saying, Luke's a great historian. He's the greatest <laughs> historian uh, who ever lived. That's right. That's right. That's right. Luke is a fantastic historian. Um, there's a four volume work about just Luke's writings in the book of Acts that, that about how the details that Luke alludes to in, in the history of the first century are corroborated over and over again by what we know about. And when you study, when you do that kind of detailed <clears throat> analysis, reading those kind of historians like Ramsey, who's great, when you actually see what a reliable historian he is, especially throughout the book of Acts, where he has all these historical figures yep. Yep. like uh, Gallio, where he was ruling for just one tiny, narrow piece of time. And we find an inscription with that same ruler in that same place. I just gained so much more respect for him. And it's funny, Ramsey at one point says, whenever I'd make this claim that Luke is not just a reliable historian, but the world's greatest ancient historian, whenever I'd make that claim, the skeptics I used to hang around with would always come back with this thing. Yeah, but what do you do with in the days of Caesar Augustus, there went out a decree that all should be taxed because he mentions Quirinius and there's some historical uncertainties in that. And so Ramsey decided to do some work there. At the end of it, we see that there's really good evidence that Quirinius was in charge of a census. There are some questions about the timing and was he over here, the secretary in charge of it, and then became the governor. And that's right. where it gets right. confusing. Right. There are very good answers to that. And, yeah. But we see the claim in a lot of the secular scholarship that Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. No, no, you actually have it all wrong. It's you guys don't know what you're talking about. Luke is, yeah. has to be given more respect. Yeah. Obviously, when you listen to the street interviews, you could tell like the one guy who said, I prefer to have evidence for my views. I'm with him. I want to have evidence for my views. But it sounds like as he was talking to his Christian friends, he was under the impression that faith is just a feeling and it's just this kind of blind leap that doesn't require evidence. So where would we go in the Bible to see that it is okay with evidence? Well, I, I would go all the way back to parts of the Old Testament. Um, we see it in the life of Moses. You see how Moses actually poses this question to God. Yeah. Uh, what God calls Moses. Moses has this encounter with God in this burning bush. And, and God tells Moses, I want to send you back to Pharaoh, the most powerful emperor in the world at the time, and tell him to let all of his slave labor go. And before that, go to the people of Israel and yes. tell them what you're going to do. And go to the people who you're going to free and tell them that I talked to you, that you're going to be their leader and you're going to lead them out. So you got to talk to Israel and then you got to talk to Egypt and, and you need to you need to tell them that this is what I said. And he says, oy vey. Yeah. <laughs> Moses <laughs> says, how will they believe? They're not going to believe. How will they believe? Yeah. Um, you know, Moses is skeptical. And he's worried not only about his own skepticism, he's worried about other people's skepticism. Yes. How do I answer other people's right. skepticism? Yeah. And God does not say, just go and say it and they'll have a feeling. 
I'll give him a burning in the bosom. That's right. That's that. right. That's right. He he doesn't say he doesn't say you'll have a feeling. He says I'm going to give you a miracle to do. Oh, and 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 if they don't believe that miracle, I'm going to give you a second miracle to do. He gives them observable actions that reveal that there's something supernatural going on. So they outside of his words, it so, confirms the words. Something beyond Moses's power is at work. Yeah. Uh, that in in a way that can be observed and tested and known. And, th- and that multiple people can all observe and agree and test together. And when you so get to the there. end of Exodus 4, when that happens, he goes first to the people of Israel. It says, when they saw the miracles, they fell down and worshipped the God who came to rescue them. So this is a God who can act in real history. In other words, unlike other religious traditions, Moses does not come to the people of Israel and say, guess what? I wrote a book. God gave me a vision. He gave me words. I wrote a book. Now it's just your job to believe it. Actually, what God does is he takes the people to Mount Sinai and speaks to all of them. Like the whole nation hears God speak audibly. And then all having this very observable, very testable, a very bodily experience uh, that they can see, having all experienced that together in an undeniable way, God then says, now I'm going to talk to Moses and I'm going to give him my, I'm going to get my word to you. But here's how you can know that you can trust Moses's word. You all have heard me. You all have seen everything that I've done in Egypt and, and, and here in the wilderness and on this mountain and it, through event after event after event after event, God shows them that he's real and that Moses is his spokesman that they can trust on the basis of things they know, on the basis of reasons that they can observe and test. Uh, and so the word that comes forth from Moses there is not to be believed just because Moses says so. Yeah. Um, it's to be believed on the basis of this whole historical sequence of events uh, in which God has been demonstrating his reality in very observable ways. This is the root of the origin of the written word of God uh, that comes out of God giving observable public reasons to trust his word. So in the Quran, this issue comes up. So Muhammad has this conversation with Allah saying, will you give me a sign so that people will know that I'm really a prophet? And he says, Allah supposedly says in the section, the signs belong to Allah. You are but a humble preacher. Is it not enough that I've given you the book? Just like you were saying, it's just the book. There's nothing outside the claim. It's just a claim. And that's where I think we have underestimated the uniqueness of the Old and New Testament documents it's not merely a claim. It's a very well-attested claim. And it's it's fascinating that it's not just that, that the Bible claims that God did these public, observable things so many centuries ago. It's not just that this all happened in Moses' time. Part of the word that God gives to Moses actually builds into it a set of tests that the people of God are supposed to continue to apply in the centuries that follow. This is where it gets really interesting. So yeah, talk about the two texts from Deuteronomy where this is laid out. Yeah, in, in, in two, two places in Deuteronomy, chapter 13, uh, chapter 18, there, there are tests that God gives that his people are supposed to apply to evaluate who is truly speaking God's words. If a person comes along and says, I'm giving you the revealed word of God, uh, I've received revelation from God and here it is and you should believe it as God's word. God says, those people need to be tested. You're not to accept their word just because they say so. They need to be able to prove it. And they need it's to be able to purge skepticism. That's right. That's right. That's right. The assumption God is telling his people, there are going to be people who will come along and say false things. 
and you're going to have to be able to discern what's true and what's false. And there are going to be observable, testable, rational ways that you're going to be able to distinguish what's true and what's false. Uh, and so God told his people to apply two different tests to those future prophets. So what's the first test? Now, the first test is whatever they say in the future has to be consistent with what God has already said and already confirmed through Moses. That's Deuteronomy 13. So, so whatever prophet comes with more revelation in the future, it has to agree with the revelation that already is here. So, for example, if that text says, if he comes announcing that, you know, you should worship other gods, plural, even if he performs miracles, the miracles, the external attestation isn't enough. It has to be attesting to that, which is in sync already theologically with what Moses has already yes. revealed. Yes, God is not going to say one thing at one time and then say something entirely contradictory at a later time. Uh, that can't be true. Jesus says something similar to, doesn't he? Like you can have lying signs and wonders. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Bible has a very supernatural view of the world and says there are evil spiritual forces yeah. that are at work in the world that have powers beyond human beings. They're not ultimate. They're not yeah. divine, but they're real and they can deceive. Uh, what's the second so, test? So, so the second test then is another kind of supernatural sign. It says prophets need to be able to make predictions that you can test. So if a prophet comes along and says, I've received the new word from God, and if it, if it does agree with the word of God that's come before, and the prophet also makes a prediction about something that you can see come true, the combination of those two things confirms what that prophet is yeah. saying. So in other words, they need to be able to make short-term predictions that show that they have access to knowledge that only God could have, not merely a human being. Uh, now, prophets will come along and also make very long-range predictions, but whether you believe those long-range predictions about things that will happen centuries in the future depends upon whether that prophet is reliable in making short-term predictions that you can test. And it's the testing that's important yeah. uh, in that. Yeah. So, in other words, in order to take this additional prophet and to staple his words to Moses, which has already been corroborated mm -hmm. with the people of Israel, to be added to the canon, he has to be confirmed as a person who doesn't merely make claims, but is authenticated as the true prophet. Yeah. So can you give us some examples where there is a prophet who made short-term and long-range prophecies? Oh, let's see. Samuel does this. Yeah. For example, he tells Saul, you know, go here and here's what you're going to see and here's what you're going to find. Yeah. Uh, and, and thus and so, and, and lo and behold, Saul goes out and experiences just what Samuel said was going to happen. Yeah. Um, you have examples where the Assyrian army is threatening, and Isaiah says to Hezekiah, I believe, yeah. you know, stand fast, you know, God is going to fight for you, and lo and behold, the Assyrians uh, are defeated. Well, you know, he says, actually, that the entire land will be laid waste, except for yeah. the area of Jerusalem. And yeah. sure enough, we actually have corroborating evidence to that effect. Yeah. So Elijah comes along and says, it's not going to rain for three years, and it doesn't rain for three years. And everyone could see that and test that. So what do you say to those who might respond to that and say, okay, you're just telling me the story that the Bible itself is unpacking, but that attestation that's baked into it is just all part of the fiction. Right. So it, it is true that we don't have independent sources outside the Bible to confirm everything that happened. Everything, yeah. We, we, don't have, we don't have that. Um, but what we can show is that lots of parts of the Old Testament and New Testament actually do make references to actual historical people and events and situations. And we do have some historical evidence that actually can show that that's consistent. Yeah. That's truthful. 
So, so we can try to build a more general argument to say, in all the places that we can test the Bible's claims about history with other sources of knowledge that we have about history, we can show that the Bible is actually accurate and truthful. Yeah. So we can build a kind of general case that for, for the reliability of that. And, and in a sense, skeptics of the Bible have had to concede more and more and more of the Bible's truthfulness over time. You know, for example, there, it used to be thought that maybe some of the very later stories about the exile and things like that may have been historically rooted. But all those earlier stories about David and Solomon and Saul and the early kings and, and, and all that, all, all that's fictional. The people in the exile made up their own stories to make themselves a, a, a people, you know, so to speak. Well, lo and behold, over time, archaeologists keep discovering actual material evidence that shows that evidence of the existence of these earlier uh, characters, these earlier figures, you know, like there are pieces of pottery that show up that make reference to the house of Solomon or the house of David. Yeah. You know, what, what were supposed to be fictions that people made up, lo and behold, uh, the material evidence increasingly shows that, that the Bible's a reliable source for understanding the ancient world. So that would be one way we yeah. could go about it. Do you think that this is hard in a, not just a pluralistic culture, but also an information culture uh, because there are a lot of archaeologists, I'm thinking of one, Israel Finkelstein, who argues in his book, The Bible Unearthed, there's nothing there to unearth. <laughs> there are a lot of people who, you just pick a side and you could find books written on that. Right. This is one of the reasons I argue for skepticism. Don't just read one side of the issue, read the other side too. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to find somebody who confirms either your belief or your skepticism. And that's sometimes tricky, isn't it, for, for people who are non-initiated, either Christian or secularist, how do I enter into that world as an accountant? How do I make sense of that, that archaeological discovery? Right. And then to negotiate right. between the two sides. Yeah. And, and, and I th so I think what, what you're what you're raising there is the idea that a lot of a lot of reasons I think that people would say that these biblical stories are unbelievable is because they contain supernatural events. Yeah. They contain miracles. And there is a kind of uh, skepticism towards any kind of miracle claim that some people in our in our day have. That was me when uh, a third grader. Sure. I thought sure. the best way to explain this is just that it was made up. And there are, of course, lots of people who claim to be able to do miracles in our world who clearly can't. So there are lots of bad claims about miracles yeah. that, that we encounter. So you it, you can see how a person would become skeptical about all yeah. about all miracles. Right. You know, uh, it would be easy. But but the fact that some claims about miracles are false doesn't mean that all of them are necessarily. We have to be able to test them. Just like if there's a counterfeit bill, doesn't mean all bills are bad. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. If I go to one bad restaurant, that doesn't mean all yeah, restaurants yeah. are bad. But but oftentimes I think it's not just that people are skeptical about miracles. Some people have almost without intending to adopted a philosophy that says miracles don't happen in the world. Miracles aren't real. And that's actually expressing a view of reality yeah. that, that, that basically is claiming that there is no supernatural creator. There is no supernatural God or agent who could actually do anything like that in the world. That's a big claim. It knows the end before it does the investigation. That's right. Miracles don't happen. I'm going to discount this one claim here because they can't happen. And how do you know they can't happen? Because of blind faith. That's not a history. That's not a conclusion from history. That's a conclusion from philosophy. Exactly. And so this is why we have to be able to sort of talk to people not only about history, but also about the larger philosophy of life that they have, you know, um, th does that philosophy of life make sense? It, what I find is especially strange is you will sometimes hear people say things like, 
I'm kind of really don't think something like a virgin birth could happen. Yeah. You know, right. but I believe there's a God, <laughs> which is really strange. I'm thinking if, if, if you think there's a God who could actually create the whole physical universe out of nothing, um, virgin births don't seem like a pretty problem. problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, uh, so sometimes it's just we need to get people to connect those dots. Yeah. To see if you have reason to believe that there actually is a God and we'd have to talk about what kind of God do you believe in? Yeah. Uh, you know, for sure. But there are a lot of people who believe that there's some kind of higher power. There's some kind of supernatural power that stands behind our universe. Yeah. Created our universe. Well, if you believe that there's something supernatural like that, miracles shouldn't be such a big problem, you know, but we have to get people to connect those dots. And what does it usually say? Like, you know, you want me to believe in God. Well, you know, I won't believe unless he shows up here right now and performs what? <laughs> some kind of miracle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I had a friend who did this once. He said, okay, all right, let's just say he did show up and do that miracle. Would you want your kids to believe? Would you want your grandkids to believe? What would you do to get mm -hmm. your grandkids to believe what you just witnessed? They're like, I bet he heard them about the miracle. Started connecting <laughs> the dots to the kind of language that was recorded in the New Testament. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. So in other words, what kinds of things could corroborate the claim to omnipotence? Well, if a god was omnipotent, he has all power, he would be able to levitate and to do all kinds of things. In other words, we want proof of faith. All right, well, there's another kind of proof, though, that I think the Bible itself presents, and that's the proof that's not rooted in omnipotence, but omniscience, right? So listen to this language here from God in Isaiah 41. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Tell us what is to happen. Declare to us the things to come that we may know you are gods. Here God is ridiculing, mocking the dumb idols who can't speak, who can't tell us what's to come. And from this section in Isaiah, moving forward, it's the beginning of the servant songs. And he begins to just speak forth things that come to pass. Like Cyrus is going to come mm -hmm. and liberate the people who have already been captive in Isaiah's mind. That hasn't happened yet. He's living in the time of the Assyrian crisis and then he kind of projects forward to the Babylonian captivity, but then he projects even more forward that the Babylonian captivity will come to an end. Cyrus will liberate the people. And then he goes even further when you get to 52 and 53, that all the nations will stream to Zion. Kings will shut their mouths because of what Yahweh does. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord lays upon this one, the iniquity of us all. I don't think there's anything like this in any of the world's literature. And I'm just surprised. I'm shocked, actually. Because this is at the heart of my own conversion. I'm shocked at how underutilized this is as an apologetic tool. You have a gospel of Matthew written 700 years before the time of Jesus. A section here, you know, Isaiah 52 and 53. Mm -hmm. I, just, I haven't seen a lot of that. Yeah, I, I, think, I think this kind of argument may have been used more in the past. I mean, you certainly see the apostles themselves using an appeal to prophecy as one of their primary kinds of yeah. arguments all throughout the New Testament. I mean, Matthew kind of structures a great deal of his gospel around this. Theme. It, this therefore fulfilled what was written. Yeah. Yes. I mean, all the gospels do this. They're all presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these patterns of what God's been doing. Yeah. They all do this. Matthew goes especially out of his way to say, and he fulfills this prophecy yeah. and that prophecy and that prophecy. And Paul argues the same way when, when we see Paul, the way that Paul argues with Jewish believers. Yeah. This is his primary approach to say, God had made promises about what he would do in sending a promised king in the line yeah. of David, and here he is. 
uh, see how Jesus fits the pattern of all that God had promised. That's if you look at Acts chapter 13, um, uh, in places like that, where he goes and reasons in the synagogue with people who already know the Old yeah. Testament story, it makes sense uh, why he would do that. Or in the, like in the Berean context, he went from one synagogue to the next, and they were searching the scriptures to see whether the things that he was talking about really were there. Right. Jesus is the Christ. And I think that's something else we forget. Like Christ isn't the last name. <laughs> yes. It's Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised Messiah. It's been fulfilled. So that which was promised by Moses and Isaiah and all the other prophets, we have seen with our eyes. And I think Peter uses that language too, um, having confirmed the promises of the prophets. So mm. they witnessed that which had been predicted. Yeah. I think what maybe makes this argument a little harder in the modern world is that it requires you to understand the whole biblical story. Which is what um, you kind of see in Acts 17 when they're at Mars Hill. So what does Paul do in Mars Hill? Yeah. So when, when Paul goes into Athens and he's reasoning with Greek philosophers who who aren't as familiar with, with all that Old Testament background and history, he doesn't start with prophecy. He looks around at all the altars to all the gods in Athens and he says, I see that you are religious people. And I also see that you have an altar to an unknown God. You, you're actually skeptical enough yeah. that you're willing to admit that there might be something that you haven't, you haven't found yet. Um, so for Paul, that's his jumping off point. I, I want to tell you who I think that unknown God is. And then he, he actually quotes some of their own philosophers and poets, not the Hebrew yeah. scriptures. He starts with their own literature to say, here's what your own writers have said about God. He finds common ground in what he believes and what they believe about God and, and starts from there. But then he goes on to testify about how this God who made the world, who, who created all peoples and all nations, came to us in the person of Jesus. And we can know that, he says, because he raised Jesus from the dead. He's given proof of this yes. by raising him from yes. the dead. Yes, you yeah. can know that this is the creator God because he brought Jesus from the dead. And that's, and that's where he lost them. He lost some of them uh, for, for reasons that have to do with their philosophy. But, but it's interesting. Eventually, Paul lands the plane in the same place. Exactly. You know, he has to start farther back. With 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 a with a broader set of questions, he's aware but, of his audience. But, but he's always but he's always leading the argument to the same place, which is the person of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and how that ultimately is is revealing God to us most fully in history. And as he tells the Ephesian elders, the job then of those people who ended up wanting to know more, then he teaches the full counsel of God, where they would hear the story about. Yeah. how Jesus was not just hinted at in some places. He's actually physically there in some right. scenes in the Old Testament. Right, right. So I'm on the same page with you, but what I see in the early church, when you look at, uh, say, Eusebius and Augustine, uh, they say things like, it becomes obvious to all men, Jew and Gentile, that these texts have to be thought of as divine because it's the gospel written in advance. Most Gentiles today, unlike Paul's audience, a lot of people are at least familiar enough with Jesus that you can present some of these weird things. Like, what do you think this ancient text is getting at? You just read them Isaiah 52, 53. And they may say, well, that sounds kind of like Jesus. And you say, he was written 700 years before. Or Micah 5, you know. Yeah, Micah 5. Wow, there's th this guy centuries before Jesus says, a ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem. Yeah, that particular prophecy was really instrumental in my conversion because it goes on to say that he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And that's not something that, A, you can't fiddle with where you were born. You can't have any effect on that. It's not up to you. And you also can't make it happen that yeah. he will be great to the ends of the earth. Yeah. 
like what other person born in Bethlehem is great to the ends of the earth? Do you know of any? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, and that's an especially important point when we think about how there, there are some skeptics who will say Jesus was wanting to present himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. Yeah. But a person who wanted to do that, who already had this existing story that he wants to connect himself to. Yeah. Well, he would just intentionally going around, try to make himself fit like the donkey. You know, I'm going to get the donkey. I'm going to do the triumphal entry. Yes. But when you look at that text, it also says he'll be great to the ends of the earth. If you look at the Zechariah path. That's right. Yeah. There are all kinds of things not in his control. Yeah. um, That that uh, that also come true that were predicted. So, yeah, I, I do think you're right. Rather than having to ask people to comb through archaeology yeah. data and lots of detailed stuff like that. You can just say, well, here's one part of the Bible that was centuries before yeah. Jesus, and here's another part of the Bible. Isn't that interesting how they all fit? Yeah. How do you, you know, explain the, these weird texts? The fact that you have so many biblical authors who wrote over many, many, many different centuries in different languages from different cultures, and yet the whole story fits together. Yeah. Like it's it's that internal unity that it is, I think, also really striking. Which I think is what's implied there in Deuteronomy 13. The story's gonna be consistent. Yes. And it's gonna be miraculous. And then Deuteronomy 18, and I'll tell it in advance. Right, it's it's all those tests yeah. come together yeah. uh, uh, in, the, in the person of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. And the, the one other thing I wanted to say was, how, do, how, would we, how would we also speak to skeptics about stories in the Old Testament. Yeah. I think another piece here is different parts of the Bible can confirm other parts, particularly the authority of Jesus can also uh, confirm the authority of the Old Testament for us. Um, If we start with the person of Jesus and can show that Jesus is who he claimed to be, if he actually is God come to us in real history as a real human being, then necessarily he is the true and ultimate authority on everything that he teaches about. Yeah. if, if he is, in fact, God himself, the creator God himself come into time uh, and history, then, of course, his word is authoritative and true. And we can then say, and Jesus believed the whole Old Testament. Yeah, thy word like, is truth. The scriptures right. cannot err. Yeah. yeah. There's a, uh, there was a, a New Testament scholar named John Wenham who wrote a book called Christ and the Bible. And he, so he wrote a whole book to show what was Jesus of Nazareth's view of the Old Testament. And he's able to show just how thoroughly the Gospels show that Jesus treats the whole Old Testament as the Word of God. And he's so, a great scholar. He was at Oxford, I think. Oxford yeah, trained. Yeah. yeah. John Wenham, great stuff from him. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, that's another way to sort of yeah. reason indirectly. You know, even if we don't have independent sources that can say, oh, we have this other historical source that tells us there was this prophet Elijah and he did these things. Even if we don't have a source like that, we can have evidence to believe that Jesus is trustworthy and Jesus's opinion, therefore, yeah. also should be factored into our thinking. Super, super powerful argument. What's Jesus' view of the Old Testament? Folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. And be sure to join us again next time as we air part two of this discussion with Dr. Mike Farley. On this episode, Dr. Farley referenced the work of archaeologist William Ramsey, And if you head to the show notes, you'll find a link to an essay he wrote on the historical reliability of Luke's reporting, along with many other related resources. On a program note, as many of you are aware, this podcast requires a little more production time than average, particularly when a given show has a lot of moving parts and creative segments. For this reason, other podcasts of this kind, even with decent-sized production staffs, typically end up releasing their episodes seasonally. 
My own goal is to release one episode per week whenever possible, but since I'm a one-man band, I'm not always able to do this. Over the past couple of months, I've been releasing some of the longer interviews that I've recorded over the years, which has freed me up to work on a book project that will be coming out this spring. The title of my new book is Questions of Faith, which relates to many of the topics that I've been addressing on this podcast over this past year. Well, I've still got a little more work to do to put this project to bed, so I'll be airing a few more of my longer interviews over the next several weeks, and after that, I've got some exciting programs in the works. Speaking of things that are in the works, consider joining Greg Kokel, Jeremy Smith, and myself for a discussion of Conversations That Matter this coming April. This conference will take place here in St. Louis, and you can find more information about this and other events in the show notes. A quick word of thanks to all those of you who decided to support this podcast, either by making a one-time donation or by becoming a paid subscriber through Substack. Thank you so much for making this work possible, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Music